Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello everyone. Today I will be chatting with Regina Lark. Regina is an entrepreneur, business owner, author, speaker, and an all around cool woman. She completed a PhD in US women's history and lives in Long Beach, California. In today's episode, we will be talking about women's work and emotional labor. We will chat about how women's work has been undervalued and marginalized throughout history and what the consequences were, as well as how women have leveraged their emotional labor for social change. Lastly, we go over the components to household management and how to create an equitable home where all tasks can be delegated. If you haven't listened to Regina's TED Talk, I will link it in the show notes. It's a must listen. Let's get started. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Today, I have Regina Lark. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here with you. So today, we are going to be talking about a subject that I am really, really passionate and excited to talk to Regina about. So we're going to be talking about emotional labor and women's work. And as I briefly mentioned to you before we started, Regina, I had four babies. I was listening to a podcast like last year sometime, and they briefly mentioned this vague way of describing how we have this emotional component to what we do at home. Like for instance, I didn't realize I was, it's almost like you feel crazy, right? I feel crazy most days because my mind has like 82 things that it's trying to balance in my head at once. And it's nearly impossible to put them all on the paper. And then once you've put them onto paper, you've already come up with another 82 things that need to happen. And to have a coined term and description of what we experience, I think is like half the battle because then the other half is, oh, hey, hun, like, let's sit down and talk about this because you're going to need to put some of this into your own, uh, onto your own plate because I'm going to lose my mind. So I'm excited to talk to you about this today because I feel like the more we talk about things, obviously, the more tools uh, that we have in our toolbox when it comes to balancing, you know, life and everything that that goes along with it. So if you wouldn't mind just talking, let's open up with, you know, what is emotional labor? And then we'll dive into like the historical overview of what women's work is and how it's evolved. I do want to um, say a word about the word balance. (laughs) Mm. It's kind of impossible. (laughs) Yeah, no, there is no balance. When I I think about balance, it's like everything on both sides, all sides have to be equal. And that is just not a reality. So I'm, I'm, I'm on a, uh, I'm on a mission to replace the word balance with integrate. We want to integrate 
the things into our life that we have to do that are important, that we want to do, that bring us happiness, that provide us with self-care. It's like the integration of all of these things. Mm -hmm. Balance is like so much pressure. (laughs) It is. It is. No, you're right. It is. It is. And I feel like, but that's something, I feel like that's a term that's used so- It is a term. I stopped using it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We have to achieve this like balance, um, whether, you know, not just in motherhood, just in life in general. And it's like, for what? Well, and the the, the, the term is work-life balance as if it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. We're either working or we're living, <laughs> you know, I guess. I guess that's what it is. Okay, so to your question, what is emotional labor? Emotional labor is uh, historically the invisible, undervalued, unvalued, unwaged, unacknowledged work that happens in the desire to give care and comfort to those around us. The term was originally coined by sociologist Arlie Huxchild in her book, The Managed Heart, where she, where she interviews flight attendants and people in the food service industry and, and described their unpaid very present, very emotional, you know, is everything okay? Attend to all of those needs. And it's, and it's a twofold. It's really to keep customers around them comfortable and feeling safe and, and feeling like they're having a good experience with you. But it, it, it generates uh, for food servers better tips. You know, it generates a way to increase <laughs> your income just a little bit. So, I, I hadn't really thought about it until just this moment, but when I think about the, the food server being very kind and solicitous and really bending over backwards to make sure that my dining experience is exceptional, that's where we see emotional labor pay off because it'll result in me giving greater than a 20% tip. Right. But it's mostly so what so Arlie Hochschild coined this term for us in the mid 80s, 1980s, and then feminists, um, sociologists, journalists and others popularized it at the beginning of 2000s to encompass all of this unpaid, invisible, ongoing care, nurturing, kindness work. There's the word work that tend to um, be given over by women. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because I was listening to your TED Talk before um, we started, and it's great. It's like this 13-minute, really empowering video to just listen and watch about how, you know, and we'll, we'll dive probably more into this, but just that this is so commonly women's work, and this is always been this way um, since this term was was coined back in, you know, when Arlie was talking about it in the 1980s, and that men generally are not as socialized as women are when it comes to, you know, when you're playing with your kids. And when you have, say you have all girls, right? And it's funny because I did the same thing where I had two girls, and then I had a boy, and then I had a girl. So when I had the girls, you know, you buy the typical kitchen set that they can play with and you buy, you know, dolls and you buy these things and you don't buy, I mean, you don't do this like intentionally. This is just what you do. And it's funny because, (laughs) you know, my first child who, you know, she's a girl, never played with any of those things ever. You know, she preferred to play with Legos and magnetiles and playing sports and doing things like that. And and it was funny because I was like, oh, well, you know, I could just buy whatever. Like, just I don't have to buy specific things. Right. And then, you know, our son was born and I was like, this is great because he, the majority of the time, plays with the dolls with my middle, other middle girl and they play kitchen. And it's so great. And I, I didn't realize it was all unintentional. And once I started to dive into this deeper, I thought, oh my gosh, this is this is amazing because there's no, okay, you're my little girl and I'm going to teach you how to cook and I'm going to teach you how to play kitchen and I'm going to teach you how to do, you know, this, you know, even managing relationships with your Barbies, you know, like all these things. And boys don't, I mean, well, I feel like, you know, throughout time, those were not the things that they were doing with 
their moms necessarily. They were maybe going out into the farm and doing the labor with dad or what have you. You know, it's just been historically how it's been. And I feel like talking about that more um, as much as we can will help in the future for what we define as women's work as it's not women's work. It's everyone's work. But it's it's crazy because, you know, you mentioned too that we're we, we might be better at it because we were socialized that way, right? Our parents might have raised us saying like, okay, well, you're going to be, you know, cooking and cleaning and doing all these things. And Lindsay, I don't know if it's the parents saying that per se, like you said, so much of how you were doing toys was unintentional. What my perspective is that we expose girl children and boy children to certain tasks. Mm-hmm. We're exposed to it. So girl children tend to be more exposed to the um, daily work of household labor versus boy children. If the boy children are, are um, tr- you know, in, in, if we were to look at this way of being dividing the work by gender, boy children may be exposed to how dad is managing their part of the household. And, and girl children are so busy working with mom on her part of the household, they're not being exposed to what dad is doing. So I think so much of it has to do with this, the historical nature of the division of labor at home, because it's, it's been, you know, I hear, I, I hear this a lot. The, the, the work of the household is a labor of love. And I'm thinking we've been focusing on the love, not the labor. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> it is. It is interesting. And, you know, it's it's very much dependent, I believe, you know, obviously household to household um, as opposed to what they are exposed to. But there are definitely households that, you know, might even intentionally, depending on your religion and what have you, um, focusing in on on certain tasks and, you know, dependent on, on if you have a boy or a girl. But even still, like, I mean, I've found it eye-opening that even in 2023, there are still households that very much delegate specific tasks to a specific gender. And it's just wild to me because it's, these are things I never thought about as I was growing up. I was just, you know, you become a parent and you just realize, oh my gosh, like things were not <laughs> quite as how I, you know, saw them to be when I was younger. And, you know, the older you get, obviously the more aware you are and the wiser you become and all of those things. But by then getting the other adult in the household, by the time a mom, a professional outside of, you know, in the paid workforce, in the paid workforce, and then, you know, the, the, the professional homemaker at home, by the time she recognizes, holy hell, this is a lot of work. Why am I the only one doing it? By the time she gets to that aha moment, from what I've seen, getting the other adult in the household on board with your aha moment is going to be a big challenge. And I think uh, this is what happened during the second wave of the women's movement. This idea that women want to have access, break the glass ceiling, Um, 1963 Equal Pay Act, you know, all of these ways in which through the 60s, 70s and early 80s that that feminists and moms and and um, secretaries and, you know, those who are bumping their head on the glass ceiling, all of that as they are are experiencing their own aha moments and clamoring for change, their male counterparts were not there with them. They were not standing side by side. And so it's it's not dissimilar to the aha moment in the household for the mid-career woman going, wait a minute, how is all this my job? Because the chances are very good that she and her spouse or the other adult have had conversations, arguments, cajoles, begging, pleading all through this until it was like, wait a minute, why am I asking for help? Mm-hmm. How is this my job? <laughs> Yes. Okay. How has women's work been undervalued and marginalized in various historical contexts? And as a result, what have been the the consequences of that over time? 
historically, women have primarily been responsible for the unpaid domestic labor, right? Childcare, cooking, cleaning, caring for the elderly. And again, that's a huge, that's the, that's what I'm calling the shirt, the third shift mm-hmm. when you get, you're, you're doing paid work and then you come home and you take care of the family doing the unpaid work. And then about 10 PM, you're calling in prescriptions for your mother's eyeglasses. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, the work has often been considered a natural extension of her roles, and none of these roles had ever really been given any economic value. And the economic value parts of it are significant to the conversation because we value what we pay for. Right. <laughs> we, value, we value a wage um, attached to a job. By the end of the American Revolution, about the 1780s, 1790s, Uh, as the framers of the constitution and the founders of this country are mulling over like, okay, we're going to grow a great Republic. Okay. I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what they said, but we're going to grow this great Republic and this great Republic needs future leaders. How, where are future leaders going to come from? And after all the hemming and hawing and, and going around, they decided that the future leaders of our country ought to come from a well-ordered home. And a well-ordered home um, promotes thriftiness and sobriety and orderliness and cleanliness and, and really a linear way. You know, you move from one to the next to the next. And, and who better to create the well-ordered home than this new, new American woman? Mm-hmm. And a term was developed. Uh, I believe it was historian Nancy Cott. I should have looked this up. <laughs> Republican motherhood. And it is as if the weight of the Republic is now on her shoulders to create the future citizens and leaders of the state. So the value of the work was there to create future citizens, but it was seen as a natural extension to the role of wife and mother. Because this is also a time that women aren't doing a lot of work for wages. And if they are, so, so there's the, you know, enslaved women who are working 24 seven with no wages. And then there's farm women who are working 24 seven just to keep heart and soul together. Mm-hmm. But women tended to not have, especially in this middle class that we're talking about, the Republican motherhood ethos was directed toward women in the middle class. But what this did, so the value is on creating future leaders, but women were economically dependent on men and, and they had, they lacked financial independence and they had limited opportunities for any type of personal or professional development. Over time, as we evolved uh, in many ways as a, as a country, as a culture and as a society, Over time, as women enter the paid workforce, the work that they're going to be shunted into are are going to be work that are traditionally associated with women, teaching, nursing, caregiving. And again, these are professions that have seriously experienced low wages because of what we value as a society. We know that caregiving has to happen But again, I I can't help but think of this idea of the labor of love. It's about the love. Caregiving Mm -hmm. is about the love. And if you talk to any caregiver today, the the rate of burnout is is exceptionally high. Because again, the work is seen as easy. But any job that is 24-7 without let up at all, ever, 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 caregiving is that. Household management is that. Working in a factory can be that, mm-hmm. but working in a factory uh, is, is waged work. So this type of occupational segregation, shunting women into work that seems to come naturally to them. And then what did women, what were feminists clamoring for in the 70s and 80s? Uh, breaking the glass ceiling was one thing in terms of, of business prospects, but breaking the glass ceiling in terms of education. Betty Friedan is writing in 1964 in her book, The Feminine Mystique. She interviewed 300 women from her graduating class at Wesleyan University, and they talked about degrees that they had earned while there, but all they do now is wipe 
noses and prepare lunches. And they're feeling that the training and the education that they did get really served them personally, maybe, but not humanity as a whole, which what they were looking for, maybe a higher paying job. Mm -hmm. So the consequences of all this reinforce stereotypes and expectations about gender roles. It restricts women, but I also think it really restricts men. Because as you heard in, in the TED Talk, and I quoted Eve Rodsky, who wrote Fair Play, if we allow men into their full potential at home as caregivers, what would that mean as we unleash women into the world? I mean, I, <laughs> I find that to be huge. Absolutely. I mean, so many different things. You know, you mentioned, you know, as, as women started to, to get degrees, <laughs> I think about this even still now. I have so many friends that have gotten a degree. It might be an associate's, it might be a medical degree, and they're physicians and they end up either bumping down part-time or even some of them just completely removing themselves from the workforce, you know, for what they intend to be a year or two, but then what often becomes many, many years later, right? And we've gone over that hurdle of finally, you know, educating ourselves and having that opportunity. And that's all great and fun. But it's funny because once you have kids, things change so drastically, whether it's, oh my gosh, I had no idea childcare was going to be so astronomically expensive or difficult. I mean, even just personally, like my husband and I, we have crazy schedules. We both work in the emergency department. Those hours are not available in a childcare type setting. We would need to have a personalized nanny or babysitter here that could do these crazy hours to cover us both. And that is astronomically expensive. For children, people want $30, $35. I mean, it's like, what's the point of going to work? Women are now in a place where we are able to, you know, we we value that we want to be educated to a to a different um, degree that we have been historically in the past, but it's hard for us to keep, you know, moving up within our own careers because if we want to have a family, well, well, that's difficult, and we have to take time off to do that because we just cannot do both, you know, or if we do do both. We run ourselves dry. And for some of us, there's some happy medium and, and you know, we might really love being able to do both. Like where I'm at right now, I, I really love where I'm at right now, but it's still difficult. And especially when you want to focus more into your career and, and you're not able to do that because of this unforeseen invisible work that you are doing at home. I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, if you think about all the different things you have to balance, it's like you got to balance the schedule which is an ongoing everyday task, right? Like how is my kid going to get from A to B? Who's going to be there for my kid when they get home? You have multiple kids times that by three, four, five, whatever it is. And it's just, it's like suffocating, you know? The other thing I wanted to ask you when you were talking about wages and about the occupations or roles that have been traditionally associated with women's work. Do you think we have made any progress with the wages when it comes to those specific occupations that we would associate with women's work? Like, have we like made any progress historically from when women were entering the workforce as a nurse or, you know, a caregiver? Have we made some sort of progress? Yeah, I, a little. I mean, over decades, there have been studies uh, that showed the wage gap. And today, it's, it's barely closed. White women will probably not earn equal pay to white males until like 2056. Wowzers. In t today's dollars, American women typically earn 82 cents. For every dollar that a man earns, and then this amount is lower by by women of color, mm -hmm. and and so from where it started, <laughs> sure, uh, in 1963, Congress passed the Equal Wage Act, the, the Equal Pay Act, and and yes, things have have changed, 
But when you take into consideration the fact that it's still women doing the majority of the caregiver work and dominate these so-called female types of labor, and if we continue to undervalue or devalue or not value the type of work that it is, then there won't be equity in pay. Over decades, feminists have calculated what it would take for if a full-time homemaker left the job at home, then uh, to replace her, it would be about $150,000 a year. And I'm not sure in today's dollars if that includes the overtime. I mean, I feel like it's probably so much more, right? <laughs> well, I, I, and you know, I, I was I was reading about this this morning. Even with an advanced degree, men are paid um, what is almost two thousand dollars to every woman's fifteen hundred dollars. So again, March fourteenth is Equal Pay Day, you know, <laughs> and this is one of those stuck measures that we 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 continue to grapple with. But yeah, to, to answer your question, yes, it has it has moved at a snail's pace incrementally since 1963. Yeah, yeah. It, in what way is, can you describe maybe some of the you know events in which women have used their emotional labor to accommodate for change? Like, is there anything specific, like? big movements that have happened. Um, If you don't mind kind of diving into those, I think that would be really interesting. Well, first the feminist movement, you know, it's women are using and have used their emotional labor within feminist women's rights. They're, they're out there challenging the inequities advocating for reproductive rights. Um, They're looking to, you know, the, the me too movement rape crisis hotlines. I mean, all of these, uh, the feminists in the 1970s coined the term, the personal is political. So the personal is the heavy lift of the emotional labor. It's not, it's not sharing that you were just raped. It's not talking about your abortion because these are unacceptable topics of conversations in polite society. Mm -hmm. And the women are saying the hell with polite society. This happened to me. And so because of the burden that, you know, the, the invisible weight of having experienced sexual harassment, an illegal abortion, domestic violence, these were all hidden behind closed doors. And so the personal is political. So I think that's one of the bigger, heavier lifts of how emotional labor has, has changed a society, changed a, a movement Community organizing is another another thing. You know, we look at the heroes of, of the American Civil Rights Movement, and we know about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but hardly anybody has heard of Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, so women have always been out there at the forefront of community activism because they're living the personal effects of inequity and inequality and racism and sexism using education, earning degrees in, in areas that they can create change in law, psychology. You know, before 1975, homosexuality was seen as a mental illness and it was, you know, deviant, a, a form of deviant behavior. Mm-hmm. But as, as more progressive and forward-thinking um, students entered the field of psychology, we begin to see a different take. So, so I see that women's uh, alignment culturally, socially, uh, and maybe uh, mistakenly sometimes to emotional labor, they really use that personal to make it all very, very political. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I would look at that. Advocacy, organizing public advocacy. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for if someone's listening and they're like, I really want to get more involved, you know, um, separate from me just taking this on than my own home and, and figuring all that out. But I'd love to be an advocate, you know, more, I guess you could say like globally, like, is there anything they, they can get involved in or anything you suggest as far as like websites and organizations? Reshma Sojani 
when I came across her during COVID, um, she had created uh, the Marshall Plan for Moms. And the Marshall Plan historically was a post-World War II development to give financial and infrastructure aid to countries that had fallen to communism during World War II. The Marshall Plan for Moms <laughs> is, is to give infrastructure and, and aid to um, women, full-time working women to, I mean, what one of the quotes that so Johnny had during COVID, when the schools closed, nobody asked us if it was okay for the kids to come home. <laughs> nobody asked us. So uh, she's the founder of Girls Who Code, the author of Brave, Not Perfect. And it really confronts this big lie of feminine, you know, this idea of corporate feminism and bring it down. Uh, so Rachel Sujani, I, I think whatever your listeners are involved in, whether whatever your passion is, whether it's wages, whether it's adequate childcare, whether it's uh, a place where older adults with dementia and al Alzheimer can have daycare, right? Daycare for adults with dementia and Alzheimer is sorely in need. And again, it's women picking that up. And caregiving not only their adult parents, but their spouse's adult parents. So I, my big suggestion is the areas that you're passionate, Google those areas in your local community. I, I think that, that all change is local. Yeah. One of the challenges that your listeners are going to have to get involved in other groups and organization is how do you incorporate that into your already full schedule? So one other suggestion would be to name it and claim it with the other adults in your life. View my TED Talk, you know, look at Eve Rodsky's Fair Play documentary online. I mean, it's, it's being exposed. You know, one of the challenges, I think, for, the, for an equitable division of household labor is so much of the labor is invisible. And it's it's invisible to such a degree that those who are doing it don't even recognize just how invisible it is. Exactly. That's precisely my exact point of this entire thing. Yes. Seriously. So it's exposing those who we want to partner with on what the hell's going on in our home. So that, we, and we said earlier, so that if the other adult in the household is an equal partner at home, then <laughs> there's, there's more time in one's life to get out there and be an activist in those areas that you feel very passionate about. Mm -hmm. But again, I think all of it starts at home mm -hmm. and coming to terms with what does it mean to have household equity? What does that look like, feel like, smell like, act like? Yeah, it's 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 a lot. It's very very layered. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it really is. Okay. So all this talk about household household equity and this division of labor. In your personal words terms, how would you approach this? So say you know you're chatting with a couple, and this is a problem for them. Where are we starting with this? How does the conversation begin? And what do you suggest? Do you suggest making a list? Do you suggest like what, where do we start? Like if we, that's great that we've figured out that we're doing too much and like, oh, it's a term. And like, it's awesome that I can talk to my friends about this, but then where do we go from here? And, and what are the steps that we can take? I would start by looking at Eve Rodsky's Fair Play or Regina Lark's TED Talk. I would just start there because mm -hmm. what happens in those two uh, platforms is an overall recognition. Mm -hmm. Once that's accomplished, or, or if somebody, if a couple is, you know, they really want to figure things out. They, they see how labored and beleaguered and, you know, they have that she's just feeling overwhelmed. I would suggest that both um, adults go into separate rooms and without any filters, without labeling, without judging, nothing, write down what you each do to contribute to the household. Mm -hmm. Just write it down. Go crazy. Write it all down. 
If you're the one who dusts the top of the fan blades, write it down. Everything gets written down. Mm -hmm. And then compare. See where you each stand. Talk about the work. Talk about the, the list that's weighted more heavily. What does that list look like? Are all those tasks needed, desired, expected? Mm-hmm. What can be offloaded to the other adult? What can be offloaded to an outsource, you know, somebody else doing it? One of the most revolutionary <laughs> projects that, uh, projects isn't the right word. One of, one of the most revolutionary suggestions we have had with our clients. My, my company is, is a clear path and we declutter and organize. All of my work with a clear path brought me to the emotional labor book and the TED Talk. Mm-hmm. So the work of the household needs to be uh, examined from, from a bird's eye view. And once we understand what the heck is going on, how, how do we make sense of how to, how to move forward? So is every task on this list necessary for the peace and comfort and well-being and caregiving of the household? And if, and if these things are so important, divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. I did um, a lot of focus groups for my emotional labor book. And one comment stands out to me. And this woman said, when my husband and I got together, we talked about everything. And we were going to be one of those progressive couples. He was on board with with. And she goes, in your language, an equitable division of labor. We talked about it all. She said, hindsight tells me we stopped the conversation too soon. The emotional labor book has in it what's called anticipating the emotional labor life cycle. It also talks about this concept of radical delegation. So I'm going to take those two apart. Radical delegation is delegating work that has to be done regardless of who's good at it. The emotional labor life cycle is anticipating what's coming up. So I think in Regina's perfect world, couples once a month would make a date. There's something on the calendar. They talk about it once a month and they anticipate what's coming up. Mm. What needs to happen? Who's going to do it? How do we preemptively radically delegate what's coming up? I mean, these are big, huge concepts, but when we bring it down to its least common denominator, There's work in the household that needs to be done. The work does not require gender. The work does require noticing. And sometimes noticing, (laughs) here's a a silly example, but I was called into um, a couple and uh, she called me and he was there and he was very eager to learn about my company and what we could do. And we're sitting on the couch and I looked over at the kitchen and there's a kitchen island and the island was filled with everything from pacifiers to electric cords, to bananas, to plastic, everything, everything, everything was on the kitchen counter on the island. And I'm talking and I, and I pointed to the island and I said to her, how does that make you feel? When you look at that, how do you feel? Now she's looking at something very, very visible. Mm And she said, when I see that, I feel depressed. It makes me anxious. This isn't how I was raised. It makes me sick. I I don't like looking at it. It hurts my heart. So I said to him, when you look at that that mess of an island, how does that make you feel? He goes, that doesn't bother me. She just let loose the invisible part of what this is for her. He responded by saying, it doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm. So he's not able to make that connection. Mm -hmm. He says it doesn't bother me and he follows it with, I don't know what the problem is. I wake up with the baby every night so she can get her beauty rest. Then I looked him dead in the eye and I said, and what do you do the other 95% of the time? Now, I didn't get the job. (laughs) They didn't hire me declutter the kitchen island. Oh God. But it, it was reminiscent of what I hear. So, so again, how do we make the invisible work of emotional labor very visible? Mm-hmm. What kind of man does it take to want to be an equal partner? I, I, I'm not quite sure why the, the arguments, the conversations, the conjoling, the begging, the asking for help, 
why that has to be actually said more than once. I don't get that. Mm-hmm. But it it's said over years. So I, I think, well, what what has to happen in how we're raising boys into men? And again, I hear from women in their 50s and 60s telling me, thank goodness it's changed. Mm. And I have women calling me in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s. They're, they're newly cohabiting. They are kind of blown away by the fact that they're doing the household labor by default. It never occurred to younger women that they would not have an equity partner at home. It just didn't occur to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so <laughs> I, I, it, it's so layered and it's so big and it just engenders uh, conversation after conversation. We've got to start talking about this with, with our couple's friends. Mm-hmm everybody's experiencing it. Yeah. And, you know, I really loved in your TED Talk, you break it down into, you know, there's two components to household management, right? There's the physical work, which is the very obvious part, which I think, you know, at least like my husband, he's like, oh, I can do the dishes. I can vacuum. I can do all like he can name all those physical things so easily. And he helps so much with those physical things, right? Because they're visible and he sees me doing them. It's the invisible work, which is the mental load, which needs to be seen, which needs to be visible to our partner in order for them to understand what type of mental load we are talking about and what we are dealing with. And I think we are so trained societally and and just in general to be handling that load without much of uh verbalization of it. And that certainly needs to change. And I think, like you said, the first step is really sitting down and making this list where you can have these two columns of physical work and mental load of work and write down every single thing. I mean, I did this and my husband was like, are you going to be done writing at all ever? And I'm like, no, I'm not. Because you want to know what? Like in five minutes from now, I'm going to think of five more things I have to put down on here. And like you said, a lot of this is future outlook things, okay, right? There's birthday parties coming up for your kids. There's birthdays for family, friends. There's events. There's sporting things with kids. There's all of their school-related activities and events. And do you need a sitter? And do you need... I mean, it is never ending, right? And to write all of those down makes it become very visible to the other person, right? And they can say, holy shit, you do all of this in your head, right? And like you said, making whatever works for your family. If you want to meet once a month and say, okay, this month, let's look at the calendar. We have X, Y, Z, A, B, C going on. We need to get a present for this. We need to do this. We need to make sure that's like whatever you have going on, we are delegating all of those mental load activities at the beginning of the month. Because You know, we have people coming in to do our floors. Okay, you're responsible for navigating all of that, talking to all the people, moving everything around. I can help you when you need it. I'm going to be, you know, thinking about all the kids' sports for the month and and making sure that we have someone that can bring them there at, at whatever time and blah, 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 and just delegating all of those mental load activities. The physical part, that's the easy part, right? That's the easy part. It's the, oh, I can't do that right now. Can you do that? I mean, those are so you know, visually obvious. Well, in your story, I guess maybe they're not. So, you know. The divide and conquer is great. And when it's new, you have to build in to how are we going to hold each other accountable? Because you don't want to be the mommy again saying, did you, how come this didn't get done? Right. So again, as adults, you have to come up with an agreed upon way for checks and balances. Mm -hmm. Because again, if, if I'm delegating a task, that means it's no longer my task. Right. I hire people in my company to do a particular job. I'm not doing the job. Mm -hmm. They're doing the job. They're not helping me with the job. It's their job. And then twice a year, we do employee evaluations. Through the year, we stay in touch. 
if I find that something wasn't done, I, I go back and find out what happened. I'm also a very trusting employer. So I just trust mm-hmm. that what I hired you to do will we'll get it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I love how you brought that up too. You know, just the mention of, you know, you don't want to be a mom to yet another person in the house who is supposed to be on your same level and your partner, your partner. And that is where you can get into some really muddy waters, right? As far as like the longevity of your relationship, because no one wants to wake up every day having somebody nagging at them and telling them to do something 500 times, right? Like that would drive me crazy. I'm sure it would drive everyone else crazy too. Like you don't want that. (laughs) And as the person who's delegating, you also don't want to have to nag at somebody and and tell them what to do 500 times. So I think it is so important to just have that discussion of we are equitable partners. We need to talk about this very big job, right? That is the job of household management. And we need to take responsibilities, each of us, and we're going to divide them up and we're going to conquer them. Now, will there be times where someone forgets to do things? Of course there will be. I do that all the time. Like that's natural. But I would encourage those listening. And I don't know what you would think, Regina, but just like let them try to do it and don't remind them. Right. And then you can always let them reap the consequences of that. Right. Like most things won't completely fall apart if you just let them kind of like forget about something and then say, oh, well, it looks like you forgot to do this. Then, you know, it doesn't happen or what have you. And then they can say, oh, shoot. Like, yeah, you're right. But to be like, oh, well, did you do this? Did you do it? Did you do it? Every day is annoying. And, you know, you want to give your partner that responsibility and the consequences of not meeting that responsibility. Once you give away that task, the task is done. And I'm saying this, I'm preaching to myself because I I do have a hard time delegating, giving up responsibility for things, um, type A personality and just really hard for me. But it's so important. And so I'm sure people that are listening need to hear that too, but it's just, it can be difficult, but it's so, so important. Well, it's so interesting because I, I, sometimes I theorize about this idea of the control and it's good to be in control. I like having control, but sometimes that control can be so overwhelming that I'm not getting to the things that I enjoy. Mm Mm-hmm. But I, I, I wonder about why I have a need for control over this. Mm. And so I, I would encourage folks to look at that. Where, where does that need for control come from? Do you feel out of control in other areas? And this is where the control happens? I don't know. Also, what, what I don't hear a lot about, and it came up in my talk, it's, it's, you know, what does it take to actually do the work of household management? And it takes an ability to plan, prioritize, do things in a linear fashion, to move forward in your thinking. It's, it's to have a good, good relationship with time, well-managed emotions. You know, all of this leads to getting it done. GSD, get stuff done. One needs to have an intact executive functioning, which is part of our, our brain wiring. Uh, that's how, that's how everything gets done. (laughs) That's how you keep a neat and tidy household is that you've got really good executive functioning skills. If you live with ADHD or depression or anxiety, if you're involved in, in a lot of life transitions from marriage, death, birth, divorce, cancer, COVID to, the end of one school year and the beginning of another school year from the end, from the end of for, from June and then summer starts and then summer ends and then school starts. All of those are life transitions. And if you have executive function challenges through your life transitions, chances are you feel even worse about the volume of work at home because it's damn near impossible for you. And yet we call it women's work. Mm-hmm. If you're the woman who has these executive function challenges and you have a partner at home that isn't partnering with you on the volume of work at home, you're going to feel pretty bad about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that I think that part of the, the acknowledgement needs to happen. It's, it's what does it actually take to do all of this? 
Oh my gosh, I feel like we could just talk about so many different things as well. <laughs> you know, there's like you said, there's just there's just an unbelievable amount of layers to all of this. Is there anything that you think we talked about that you want to add to? You had asked me about um, what what um, people could read. Oh yeah, really to learn more about the history. But an, a brand new book came out, <laughs> but I, I thought about it, and it's it's a very hefty tome, and it's called Fifty Years of Ms. Magazine, and this volume of fi- it will take you through the 50 years of the feminist movement. And what it does is it, is it shows historically why things had to change and how women changed it through writing. Uh, there was one essay, famous essay by Gloria Steinem called If Men Could Menstruate, <laughs> right? Taking off work for menstrual cramps would be, would be a sacrament. I mean, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so it's the ways in which feminists over decades have, have stepped back and, and envisioned women's lives, um, historically, contemporarily, uh, and how to make that and how to, uh, make those changes. That's a very cool. I'm going to write that one down. For so that would be it. That, that, and that just was released last week. It's just a stunning publication. And then I would also, you know, there's some good work out there. Eve Rodsky's Fair Play. Gemma Hartley's Fed Up. These were books that came out in 2018, 2019 to um, really show uh, the ways in which the inequities in the household really have an impact on family dynamics and, and women's access to to anything. Thank you so because much for hanging out. Only with us focused today. on what the hell is going on. At home. Mentioned in this episode All right. Well, thank you so much, Regina, for taking time to talk with us about this important topic. To continue, we appreciate you. Conversations. All right. You take good care. You too. Motherhood Meets Medicine Bye. on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.